Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. I am Steve Edwards, the host with the face for radio and the voice for being a mime, but I'm still your host again. With me today, I have two people on our panel. Let's first welcome Dan Shapir, coming all the way from Tel Aviv. Hey, hey, nice to be here. And, of course, in the purple room, AJ O'Neill. How you doing, AJ? Yo, 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 coming at you live from lower back pain. Lower back pain. That sounds like a place I don't want to be, although I'm there frequently, it seems. <laughs> hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood. I've been talking to a whole bunch of people that want to update their resume and find a better job. And I figure, well, why not just share my resume? So you, if you go to topendevs.com slash resume, enter your name and email address, then you'll get a copy of the resume that I use, that I've used through freelancing, through m- most of my career, as I've kind of refined it and tweaked it to get me the jobs that I want. Uh, like I said, topendevs.com slash resume will get you that. And uh, you can just kind of use the formatting. It comes in Word and Pages formats, and you can just fill it in from there. So uh, today we are panelist-only guest. Our guest today had to reschedule. So we have decided that we are going to talk about war stories. Not real war, just stories, things that have come up over the years as we've worked in technology and, and learned things and what to do and what not to do. So we each have at least one story that we're going to share that hopefully will enlighten you of things to do or not to do, depending on the situation. So we'll start out with Dan. What do you got for us, Dan? Okay, so it's an interesting story from a while back. I'm trying to figure ex- out to kind of remember exactly when it happened. I'm thinking something like 15 years. It was a, a past, past employer. And it kind of, the lesson that it taught me was to never assume when you're setting out to improve something, especially performance that you're supposed to always measure and and make sure that where you're optimizing or looking or improving is actually the real bottleneck and not something that you kind of assume is the actual bottleneck so it was an interesting project it it was actually nothing having directly to do with the web well actually it kind of was the the system that we're talking about was a system that enabled legacy systems like think even mainframes be accessed from modern systems. Uh, for example, let's say you want to build a web interface in front of uh, of a mainframe. So a lot of these legacy systems don't have built-in APIs that you can use, like, you know, web services or stuff like that, that we these days we kind of take for granted. Instead, more or less, their only inter- the only interface that they have is, is like a, a console. So it might be like something that uh, emulates some sort of a terminal. I think like an I, one of those uh, IBM terminals. So a lot of banks and insurance companies often still have these types of legacy systems and and it's really difficult to replace them. So until you're able to do that, what you do instead is you kind of put a facade in front of them that enables you to automate the access to them. So I worked with a company that created such systems, at least back at that time, and it would be kind of this sort of a middleware server that had a web service interface on the one end and communicated uh, using some sort of a legacy terminal protocol on the other hand. 
on the other end. So you could make web service requests, let's say, to either get information from that legacy system, effectively getting the information as if you were a terminal, reading the content out of the text returned, and sending this information down the as a response to that uh, web service, or alternatively, even enter information into the system. So you like do a form post and actually fill in fields that you send through that terminal interface into that legacy system. So that's how you could both read and write information out of those types of systems. And like I said, then you could, let's say, build a web interface to replace that legacy terminal. Is that kind of clear so far? So we're talking about BOD here. How many 7-bit bytes you can send per second, right? Uh, Well, it's not really such an issue because at the end of the day, your middleware is probably residing on the back end next to that legacy system. So bandwidth is not an issue there. It's, 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 uh, it's more, uh, think about it this way. Let's say you want to uh, enable people to see their bank balance and that bank is actually using such a mainframe to host all the customer accounts or the, and the only way to easily access that information is through terminal emulation. So it's kind of an automated facade in front of a terminal emulator. So what, I, what I'm what I'm questioning is: Are we talking serial console terminal? Like yes, yeah, okay. So like the kind of thing where you have to you have to specify what baud you want to use for the serial interface to be able to interact with the terminal. Well, it's it might be even other protocols like token ring or whatever, but let's not even go there. It's it, these okay. are legacy systems. And we, the, the company that I worked with had originally implemented such a middleware server to create web services on top of those legacy systems using C++ on Windows. Like they use the direct Windows API, like socket APIs and stuff like that. And then we said, yeah, but we would like to be able to host that middleware on various other server platforms like you know let's say a linux server instead so instead of rewriting it in c++ using different apis the idea was let's just do it in java i mean java is great on on the back end you know in a middleware type server and java has all the socket apis and and whatnot and thread pooling and whatever so you could build such a middleware server fairly in a fairly straightforward sort of a way and so the project was undertaken to implement it using Java, and it worked, but it was much, much slower than the C++ version of that middleware server, like 10 times slower. And the programmers that worked on it kind of said, well, you know, it's Java, it's the JVM, it's garbage collected versus C++, which is native. That's probably the reason. And I didn't accept that answer because it seemed to me that at the end of the day, this is just, you know, translation between formats. And, you know, there, there shouldn't be a reason that Java would be that slow, that much slower than a C++ version. So initially, I did the wrong thing, which is basically just that I wasn't familiar with the project, but I had the basic understanding of how it worked. So basically, I just got downloaded all the source code down to my computer, opened it in 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 uh, the whatever development environment I was using back then, I don't even remember, started to go over the code and looked for 
you know, bad code, code that uh, I thought was inefficient. And I found plenty of code that was inefficient. So I did a lot of various improvements in the code. And it seemed to me that I, you know, must have solved the problem. So I, you know, pushed my changes, built a system, tested it out. And guess what? I did make an improvement of about 1%. Yeah. So it turned out that I did, in fact, optimize a lot of things. But I didn't optimize things that were on the critical path. Or I didn't optimize the actual real bottlenecks. If you take something that at the end of the day only consumes, let's say, 5% of, of the total runtime and improve that tenfold, you've only improved runtime but by what? For something percent? That's like kind of what, what I had achieved. I, I had, in fact, made some significant improvements to the code, but I didn't improve the code that was the actual bottleneck of the system. And the reason was that, like I said, I went based on intuition rather than based on actually measuring. So my next step was to use a profiler. For those of you who don't know, a profiler is a tool where you can actually run scenarios and then measure where the where the application actually spends its time. And there are various ways in which such profilers can work. They can either I- instrument the actual code so that every time they enter or exit a, a function in the code, it actually like creates a timestamp so you know exactly how which functions are called in what order and how long each function actually takes to run. That's one way. Another way is to do this sort of a polling where it, it like, let's say every millisecond, it actually just goes and checks the, the call stack and, and sees where in the application the, your, your, uh, the, the execution is actually taking place. Either way, what you're actually doing is, is measuring how, what parts of the application actually run when and how long each and every one takes. So you can literally like drill down and, and see how long every function in the code that actually gets executed takes to run. And by the way, this type of profiler exists for JavaScript, for web development. For example, in the Chrome DevTools, you have uh, the performance tab, which ex- has exactly that type of functionality and consequently, I use it today quite often when I'm trying to optimize or, or even just understand how a particular web application actually behaves. It's a really great tool when you're kind of coming to grips with uh, with a new with an application that you're not familiar with, let's say, for, and, and trying to understand you know how it actually operates in in real world scenarios. So anyway, I profiled it, and it turns out that indeed. The bottleneck was totally not where I expected. I thought that the bottleneck must be in the code that that does the the transformations of on the data that the tech that takes the data that's received from the through the web service and then transforms it so as to send it to the legacy system or takes the responses from the legacy system and then transforms them in order to send them back to the through the web service because ultimately that was the core functionality in that middleware 
But it turns out that the bottleneck was something somewhere totally different. It turns out that the API that was used on the web services side, because we were talking 15 years back, it wasn't JSON, it was XML. And turns out that the code that parsed the XML was very inefficient. It turns out that the way that the XML was parsed is that instead of using some sort of stream parsing, it was it constructed like the entire like DOM object for the XML. So the way that it worked turned out was that due to, you know how it is that sometimes when you implement some code and you're trying to do this kind of a separation of concerns or encapsulation and you do it at the wrong level. So basically what they did when they implemented it, they would pass that XML down into a component. It would parse that XML to get the data that it needed and then would throw that parsed DOM away because it had its data. And then that XML would be passed to some other component in the system, which would do it again, and to another subsystem, which would do it again. So that same XML got parsed multiple times, each time just to extract a particular value. So how did you find code that I was written before I was born? Well, that you had written, you mean. That, that, I don't know what I said. Yeah. How did you find code that I had written well, before first of all, I was even born? First of all, I assume I've it's not that. before you were born because, like <laughs> I said, it was about 15 or something years ago, and I assume you're older than 15. Oh. I, <laughs> I didn't. Yeah. Okay. No, I'm not, Dan. I'm not. Thanks for bringing um, that up. But anyway, by the way, that kind of a pattern is something that I've encountered, unfortunately, many times throughout my career. Not, not specific, not, not to such an extreme degree, but that concept of due to encapsulation, performing that same operation on data multiple times in different subsystems or different components, just because each one of them is encapsulated from the other is something that I've definitely encountered multiple times, in which case you you need like to be able to view the system as a whole, realize that that's taking place, perform that parsing at a higher level so that you can pass the data in a format that actually matches what the different components need without each and every one of them needing to go through the, that process independently. So I'm, I'm actually working on something right now where I am kind of doing that, but the, I mean, it could come back to bite someone in the future, but it's basically it's easier to pass around the string value that's an encoded representation of some data than it is to pass around the data. It's just generically more useful to be working in the string format and to expect it. But I think in my particular case, and in the cases where I've done that, it kind of falls into that. 5% scenario you were talking about where the bulk of what the application is going to be doing is not parsing this string and passing it around. The bulk of what the application is going to do is other stuff and the string is just useful. But I do find it odd that a parser would choose that strategy because it seems that a writing parser, you know that everything needs to have that information all the way down. Yeah, well, unfortunately, that's what they did. So basically what they did, my my main fix, so my primary fix was essentially just to parse that XML once, hold on to that parsed tree of objects, and then pass that around instead of passing around the the XML string and basically reduce the number of, of parses 
from four or something like that to one. Also, I used a more efficient parsing engine or parsing strategy. And also, I even did some data sanity checks on the, on the uh, raw string before I even parsed it the first time. So if the string was bad, because that could happen, you could cut off before you even parsed it but just doing a string search or something like that. The end result was that after that optimization, the Java version actually ran faster than the C++ version. And by the way, after all these optimizations, then the previous optimizations that I did actually started to make an impact as well, because now they weren't just the 5%. Now they were suddenly something like a 30% because I had removed you know, a lot of the other overhead. So now that those optimizations actually started to make an impact as well. But that was just icing on the cake, as it were. But the important lesson that I've learned and something that I now do whenever I'm tasked with actually improving the performance of any system is first, I make sure that I'm actually able to measure what the current performance is. Then I make sure that I'm able to actually analyze that performance to understand where the system spends its time. That way I identify the bottlenecks, focus specifically on those bottlenecks. And after I make these changes and I verify that I've, all those changes that I've made actually have made an improvement, then I effectively just repeat the process. So I don't try to optimize the entire system as a whole each and every time uh, after I have a system in place to actually monitor the performance of the system I each time I opt I focus on the most significant bottleneck I optimize that again only after I verified based on the real data not my assumptions that that is actually the bottleneck and by the way very often, when I, you know, speak with the people who built the system, because, you know, this is something that I'm often brought in to do, they are usually surprised by what I identify to be like the main bottleneck. They have their various ideas. It's probably here. It's probably there. And they're almost always wrong, even though it's their system, the system that they built and they have intuitions about it. Usually their intuitions are wrong. And like I said, after, after I like address a particular bottleneck, I don't immediately try to move to the next bottleneck because once you've made such changes to the system, the bottlenecks tend to change. It's like, you know, when you have like a freeway and like there's a certain intersection where it tends to have traffic jams and they make like changes and they addri- and now those traffic jams are gone. But what actually happens is that those the, that traffic jam you often moves down the line and it might move to somewhere where previously there was no traffic jam because, you know, there was a trickle of, of traffic coming in from the previous one. So a traffic jam never formed. But now that that previous point was addressed, that's when like the traffic jam moved. So, so like I said, I, I usually repeat that process iteratively until I get to that point where we can say, okay, now performance is good enough. And alternatively, you know, the cost of improving performance from this point going forward is is significant to the extent that, you know, we need to consider our options. But that's a really important lesson that I've learned. And fortunately, not that late in my career or sufficiently early in my career, that you should never assume 
about uh, that you can figure out where performance bottlenecks are. You always need to to measure and identify them based on on either real world data or actually or just profiling the application in real world scenarios. Well, that would make sense considering the well-known adage about the danger of assuming, period, regardless of what you're oh, yeah, for about, sure. right? I'm a huge proponent of doing anything that you do based on data. Now, you don't always have data. You know, a lot of us uh, operate in situations where data is, is lacking or insufficient, but often you have more data than you actually realize, especially if you're willing to put some effort into properly collecting it. And by the way, it kind of leads to situations in which I, I kind of have to push back on people. So for example, you know, I'm brought in to help with a project that has performance issues and like, and I notice that projects does not have sufficient data being collected. I resist attempts to push me to try to start optimizing it or tell the team how to optimize it before I get sufficient data. And sometimes, you know, I get pushed hard and I push back because I know that if I start optimizing with insufficient data, like I said, either I'll optimize the wrong thing or maybe I'll optimize the right thing, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't know that I actually made any difference. Uh, you know, if I'm not properly measuring the system, how do I know that I'm actually improving things and not making things worse? You're all nodding in agreement, so I assume <laughs> you yes, agree with me. All right. There's no argument to be made. Uh, and Which like is a bummer. A, yeah. And, and by the way, like I said, and I'll repeat it again, I think that the performance tab in the Chrome DevTools is an amazing tool that unfortunately a lot of web developers are not sufficiently familiar with. And like I said, its primary purpose is to under, is obviously to improve the performance of your system, but it gives an excellent overview and understanding of how the system actually works, which functions are actually called, in which order, you know, where the system actually spends its time is really important when you and when you try to kind of figure out how things work and and which functions actually end up calling which other functions. Yeah, the dev tools. I live in there when I'm working on the JavaScript side. There's, I even you know hear podcast episodes or read articles about all the things you can do with the dev tools. And sometimes I feel like even with everything I use, I still have only scratched the surface of some of the the help that you get from from using those tools. Some of the tools that are in the dev tools. Yeah, unfortunately, it's kind of a complicated tab. It also has this weird thing where it has like two different timelines in the same tab. So you have like a, a top timeline and a bottom timeline, which is kind of the window into a particular section of the top timeline. So people tend to find it really confusing to the extent that, uh, dev that uh, the Chrome team has actually even created a new DevTools tab called uh, Performance Insights. Just yeah, I've seen for, that. Just because they think, you know, because the performance tab tends to be overly complex to a lot of people. So the performance insights tab is like a performance tab light, as it were. It doesn't really add information that you didn't have before. It just makes it easier to get certain information. That's my war story. So now it's somebody else's turn. All right, AJ, your turn. All right. I don't know if mine's going to be as cool, but... <laughs> <laughs> Obviously not, you know. <laughs> I'm going to try 
I'm going to try to do something that I'm great at. Take a two-minute story and turn it into a 20-minute story. So great. Back, oh, back in the olden days, my the, the job that ripped me out of college was a company that designed radars. It's actually a spinoff of the company that makes the radars that are above the stoplights and the traffic lights and stuff. So if you when you went past a traffic light, you can look up and you can see these these little boxes that are counting cars. And that company is called MSAR. And that that company had a spinoff company that at the time did work that through all reasonable assumption was for the military because some of the investment came from MQTEL. And MQTEL is an investment arm of a three-letter agency. So who knows who we were doing work for I can't possibly say. I'm certainly not allowed to say, but it's public information that uh, there was. They got funding from Incutel, so you know you can draw some lines and maybe come up with some guesses. And as you've both of y'all have probably experienced, have you done work for military or government before? I've like I, like I said, I used to work at a company that did work for banks. I don't know if they're any better than the government in, in this regard. I, I actually served in the army, and I did work for the army while in the army. But I don't know how that compares. Well, things are things are slow. Things are inefficient. Things are convoluted. There's a lot of kind of faux secrecy things that don't need to be secret. But if you can't prove that it shouldn't be secret, then Sometimes it is by default. And so you get a lot of this complication of key people don't have the right information because it's being kept from them. You're trying to have two companies work together, but you don't tell the two companies that they're working together. And then you don't tell them what they're doing. You just give them vague specs that was created by yet another company. And so you end up, by the time you finally get in the room together, it's just a hot mess. And, you know, the conversation basically says, so wait, all we needed was GZIP and JSON and we spent six months developing this other thing instead. Oh, too bad we couldn't have had a conversation to understand that's was actually preferred and desirable. Anyway, so that, that was ki- kind of the environment was we, we knew that our systems were going to have to work with Windows computers and that our customer only had approved Internet Explorer as the web browser because you want the web browser that's the easiest to get spyware through to be the certified one. That way, the upper management can always you know listen in on the lower. I, I have no idea what their reasoning was, but but for some reason, Internet Explorer was the approved browser. And what well, we were it on, can be either re- really bad or. Not that bad, depending on when that the, the story took place. You know, there were some times, you know, if you go back enough, there were times where Internet Explorer was actually the best browser available. Point but, five, baby. Yeah, something like that. Up, up until then. Yeah. Hey there, this is Charles Maxwood. I'm excited because I wanted to let you know about this thing that I pulled together that I had just I've been dying to have this for years and I never felt like I could. And then I just realized that there's no reason why I can't. So um, I'm putting together a book club and we're going to read development focused books, career books, you know, uh, technical books, whatever. The first book that we're going to do is going to be Clean Architecture by Uncle Bob Martin. If you're not familiar with Clean Code or some of the other stuff that Bob has done, 
check that out. I've also talked to him on the Clean Coders podcast, which is on Top End Devs. But uh, yeah, we're going to get on. He's going to show up to some of our meetings. And what I'm thinking is we'll probably have like five or six people uh, part of the conversation along with Bob and I at the same time. And we'll just, uh, so somebody can come on, they can ask their question and then and we'll just ro- rotate people through. So we'll we'll mute one person, unmute another person when it's their turn to come on and, and be part of the discussion. So we'll do that for like an hour, hour and a half. And then the other part of it that I'm putting together is just kind of a meet and greet gather area on Gather Town. And so after the the meetup and the call, what we'll do is we'll all go over to Gather Town and you can just log in, walk up to a group and have a conversation. And that way we can all kind of get to know each other and and make friends and, and get to know people across the world. Uh, one thing that I'm finding is that, yeah, the meetups are starting to come back, but a lot of people don't have the opportunity to go to a meetup. And I really want to meet you guys and talk to you. So we're going to put all that together. It'll all be part of that book club. You can go to topendevs.com slash book club to be part of it. And I'm looking forward to seeing you there. The first book club meeting will be in December, the beginning of December. We're starting the first week of December. and um, you'll also be part of the conversation about which book we do next. I have one in mind, but I want to see where everybody's at. So there you go. So this was, uh, circa 2009, I want to say, give or take a year. Oh yeah. By that point in time, Internet Explorer was way past it. It's, uh, prime. When did Chrome come out? Anybody remember? I could Google that for you. <laughs> I could Google early I, 2000. I could Google uh, that I as well. Say 2003, 2004, maybe. I don't remember. I remember Gmail coming out, and I don't think I think Chrome was announced the next year. Yeah. Anyway, the point being that, so what we're trying to doing is we're taking this this radar that's working with is producing images of how far and how close things are and trying to map them in a way that's really easy to understand and see. And the way that we had done this up to this point was, so th- this was back before Raspberry Pi. So Raspberry Pi came out while I was working for this company. And I don't know, I guess I probably shouldn't say what we actually used, but just in case still use it, because I think that they chose that vendor because that vendor had a industrial 20-year guarantee on being in a they produce the, the same. You, you, you don't you don't want the military police or something knocking on your door. Is that what you're saying, AJ? I don't think it's going to be that extreme, but I, I don't know. I just I don't know where the intellectual property is gone or what's become of it. Or at this point, I would assume that they've moved on to a better chipset. But I never assume, AJ. <laughs> I, sh- I shouldn't assume that because because the reason that they chose the vendor they chose was because of the long support contracts. So even if the chip manufacturer, you know, there's there's various manufacturers out there like Intel and ARM and uh, Tech Instruments and Atmel, and, you know. So even if the chip manufacturer had continued to produce the chip, could stop producing the chip, they had a, a stock supply of it or whatever. So at the time, we had an actual Nintendo 64 PlayStation style yellow cable that you would uh, a composite cable that you'd plug in and the video processing was being done on the device. It was being written to a buffer pipe. So it would just try to write one frame and then the next frame and then the next frame and the next frame. And it was extremely rudimentary. It was basically a blue background and then red dots 
and then yellow squares with crosshairs going around the the dots. And I think that the yellow squares were supposed to indicate the margin of error. And but it was basically it was and it was very very similar to the data that actually came back from the radar. So the radar is making these pulses, it's getting reflections back. And if you basically just scale that out because you know what the distances are and you know what the angles are, then it was it was not, I don't think it was quite one-to-one, but the image that we got back from the radar and the way we painted the image out to the TV screen were, were pretty close. But I think that that original one was done on on basically a developer kit board. So if you... Even now, there's a microcontroller that's pretty popular called Blue Pill, and you can you can get a developer kit version of the board, and it's got more features. It has more inputs and outputs. It has more. It just has more stuff on it. And the actual five dollar Blue Pill, because the five Blue Pill is is pared down so that it has you know just the, the minimum amount, so they can reach that five dollar price point. And then if you build around it, just add more stuff onto it. So if I remember correctly. The initial version of this radar was built on this development kit board, and then they stopped selling the development kit board. And then they end, they did an end of life on that particular feature set that came on the board. So I don't remember if the processor was still available, but there was there's some combination of features that were no longer available. And so we were going to have to switch away from this system anyway. It was it was we had to end of life it, but the military. They were, or our customers, whoever they were, <laughs> um, you know, they were perfectly happy to just plug in this yellow cable. You know, you turn the TV on, you plug in the yellow, yellow cable, boom. But, and, and it gave distances and the distances were scaled fairly accurate. So it's say, you know, 50 meters out, there's this target. It's, it's moving in this direction. It's moving closer or further left or right. And you could watch it move as the frames progressed. And there was also an XML packet system that replicated that same information. In an early version of us trying to get this thing to work for uh, the next processor that we were going to use, we we actually took the frames and we sent them across the wire as raw bytes. And the frames were were formatted in a, in a way for NTSC television. So they weren't in, in JPEG format or anything. It was just raw bytes. But in, in a very early version, I don't, I don't know if we even released this, but it was just to help us transition and, and get everything working again. We, we sent those bytes across the wire and we had to process it from that into a JPEG. And again, it was, you know, it was nearly one to one, this raw data and, and what we needed to show, but it just wasn't in a recognizable format. It wasn't an RGB format and we had to, to translate it. And this isn't actually the the point that I was building up to, but just as an aside, since we we're talking about optimization, as part of that process, it turned out that we basically had to we had to iterate over every pixel, so to speak, of the data, and then turn it into an actual PNG pixel. And it was too slow. It was producing I don't know one every five seconds. I'm I'm just making up a number. I don't remember what it was, but it was something. That was just, it was just too unacceptable. There, it just, it, it wasn't real time enough to be useful. And I had probably some, you know, recent JavaScript optimization talk and I just started fiddling because I didn't know quite how to profile it, but I thought, okay, well, you know, maybe there's a couple of things in this loop of translating the data that we could make more efficient. And I, 
I do remember there was two things. At the time, ES5 was new. It wasn't fully implemented. And so the for each function was not yet optimized. And the two things that I did that brought it down from something like five or 10 seconds down to 80 milliseconds were that, and you shouldn't do this today because today, the, these things run at native speed. They've been optimized, you know, unless you find that you actually really need to change the way you're doing it. But, but I swapped out a for each for a for loop. And then there was a place where just naivete or reason, rather than doing a plus equals through the, the iteration, I was doing a, a times by the index. So I was saying that, you know, the row, row value is. I in times I or something like that. So like instead of doing like adding like the number of pixels per row to the counter, you were multiplying the row number by the by the width or something like that. Exactly. It, well said. You you got exactly what I was trying to pull out. Yes, that's exactly what I was doing. So uh, those each of those changes was incredibly significant. Uh, it required both of them, but it it got it down to where it went from taking like I was saying, 10 seconds to render an image to about 80 milliseconds, if I remember correctly. So we went from from nowhere near real time to real time and, and cycles to spare. And anyway, this was the intermediate stage, but what we, what we ended up doing was Google Maps had already come out and there was some, there was also uh, OpenStreetMap and Yahoo Maps. It turned out they all used the same system, which I can't remember the name of it right now, but it's it's an imperfect system that's skewed. It's based on flattening the world, but you zoom in close enough, the squares are accurate enough. When you zoom out, the squares are really, really inaccurate because, you know, a square that represents Alaska is, is you know, much larger than it actually is. Whereas the, the square of something represents something at the equator is, is smaller than it ought to be. You know, it's one of those type of, of scaling issues, but we, we were able to get the Google maps downloaded. I mean, I don't know Google maps, the open open maps, the free stuff that had no copyright entanglements, which is of course is what we encouraged our customer to use, the one that had no copyright entanglements, of course. So we we were able to ship the demo of the product with the with the open open API, open street maps or whatever. And then if they if they happened to read that we reverse engineered that from the Google Maps and swapped the URL, what are we to say? <laughs> but this we created this great map system where we could overlay and then we could get the position of those targets and have them you know everything was scaled properly and have the targets move on the map so you could see something was half kilometer away a kilometer away you'd see it on the real pre-downloaded pixels or map tiles and the thing is we couldn't do this in internet explorer because we, I don't remember what all the challenges were. I mean, even starting from getting getting some of the data processed to just just having the right APIs to use for, I, I don't even remember where they were. But I, I know that that we we didn't have this thing when we we worked on this this version. We did not have it working in Inner Explorer, and we just didn't think it would be feasible to get working in Inner Explorer. And they told us that you know we had to make it work on Inner Explorer. And we basically just said, I mean, we meaning I, I just said no. And, it, and we built it to work in Firefox. I don't know if we, I don't know if we had it in Chrome, but we built it to work in Firefox and we showed them demo of this map system that was far superior to the, the system that they had before where they plug in the yellow cable and get the blue, 
blue screen with the red dots. And I think there was some amount of heat map esqueness to it where maybe it had some green or something too. But, you know, we replaced that with, with the, the open uh, street maps view and these, you know, live moving targets that are updating several times a second. And you, in the web interface, you could actually pick what color you wanted them or you could choose to ignore one. You know, so we had all of these features that they'd never really imagined that we would be able to deliver in this next version of the product. And when they saw it, they figured out how to make an exception to get Firefox as an approved browser for this specific application. And this is something where this is the reverse. My experience to date would not have me make that decision again. You know, if, if I, if I were to go back or not, if I were back, but if I were to have some similar situation present itself, Again, I would not try to fight against the powers that be because most of the time the powers that be win and the powers that be are providing your paycheck, right? And it's one of those things where only the blissful idiocy of youth allowed me to create a solution that, I mean, it was a good solution. There wasn't a better alternative. It was leaps and bounds ahead of the alternative, but just the idea of, kind of, in a way, sticking it to the man and saying, no, we're going to provide a product so good that you're going to change your rules and your policies to fit our product into your set of bureaucratic tape. I don't know that I've got the chicharrones to attempt something like that with all of the other experiences that I've had since that time. It was just such a, I don't know if it was quite fluke would be the right way to call it, but it was fortunate. And and there may have been some other forces because it was a life-saving device from, you know, the, these these devices we suspect were used in areas where people with guns were coming up against people who were trying to defend a particular area that was being held. And so it, it may have been that the life-saving benefit of it was so great, which is not what I was thinking about. I was just thinking about, you know, user experience, looking cool, well, just looking, being something that no one else had created before, being head and tails or head and shoulders above the previous solutions or anybody else's, because we had a couple competitors, nobody had something like this. So, so they ultimately ended up choosing your improved solution despite the fact that it didn't work on Internet yeah, Explorer? Yeah, so they actually were able to change their regulations and they found a way to get Firefox approved for the the systems that this was going to be deployed with. So, but yeah, but I, like I said, I don't, I don't know if I would be able to do that again today. If, if I had the, the experience and the, the wisdom that I have now, I, I don't know if I would have been that, uh, that gutsy. I don't know if you'll have time for it, but I have a funny story where I did not have the guts or the foresight or the know-how to tell no. And the consequences were a bit unfortunate. Steve, do we, do you got one you want to share? Yeah, I got a story. And then uh, we got time after that. Then Dan, we can squeeze yours in. I don't see why not from a time standpoint. Mine won't take nearly as long as, as yours guys did. This is, I guess you call it a success story. So you fit in the old uh, cliche of thinking outside the box. So back in my last place where I was working on Drupal, this was back in about 2019. I was working for a very, very large international mega corporation and manufacturing uh, industrial type corporation. And we were working on re-releasing our site. The, uh, just uh, for context, the original older site was on something like classic ASP and 
Microsoft 2000, some sort of framework and SQL server and just, you know, being held together with rubber bands and paper clips type of thing. And so we had brought uh, open source into the organization my boss had and we're using Drupal. And it was sort of a, I don't know if you call it a pyramid or tripod type approach where you had two Drupal sites on the back end that were data repositories. One was for just, you know, product information and one was a damn digital asset management type site. So your images and documents and graphics and logos and all that kind of stuff. And then instead of just using a standard front end, we indexed everything into Apache Solar and then used Solar as our data for the front end uh, just because it's faster. Well, the problem, and this is sort of a side note, was that we were still using PHP templating on the front end. So I spent more time dealing with caching issues and performance issues because of that as compared to using something maybe a little better for the front end to pull from solar. But the issue, one issue that came to be very crucial was uh, 301s, 301 redirects. So with a very, very, very large site and amount of data that we had on the old site, uh, we would take a major hit if all of a sudden all our indexed links and old links stopped working when we launched the new site. And at this point in time, it was in the spring, the site launch had already been delayed by a number of months just because it wasn't ready at the pre, at the original, originally planned launch date, wasn't even close. And so we were coming up again on our next launch date. And we had one guy that was, <laughs> it was funny, his Slack logo was like a highway sign with a 301 on it because that's all he worked on was 301s. And the issue was, how do you store them in the site in a way that they can be you know, accessible? And we had literally hundreds of thousands of them. It was I put in 250,000 at a time, sometime. And we were trying them in text files and all types of, all types of different mechanisms and ways to access them. But it was just, everything was just killing performance just because of the size, the pure size and the number of 301 redirects that we had. So it's Monday evening. We're supposed to launch the, this Saturday. So within, you know, five days. And my boss is still just pulling his hair out, couldn't get anything to work. And I had an idea. So about five o'clock that evening, a Monday evening, he called him up and I said, Hey, I know you're working on this still. How's that going? Well, not good. I can't get this and that. And I said, I know we haven't thought about this, but why don't we use solar for stashing our redirects and then just access them from the site? There's a way we can do it. So and so. And he thought about it for about five seconds. He goes, damn, that's a good idea. And so it was the end of the day. So I said, yeah, let's do that tomorrow. I know exactly how we could do it. You know, I was pretty familiar with solar, having been in charge of maintaining our solar instances and and, uh, clusters and configurations and and all that. And so the next morning I go log on and my direct report, my supervisor that I'd reported directly, I had a message in Slack said, go Steve, go, because he was so excited because this was just like the last big issue that that was really holding up the launch of the site. And so uh, what I did was went in and built a new index, you know, to find the fields in the solar configs, find everything we did. And then the other guy that I've been working on, Todd, he and I uh, worked on some code, both on, on in the Drupal side that would handle what to do, how to run the solar query to get what you want and then redirect to the to the appropriate URL. And then I also wrote a couple uh, Drush commands. Drush is a sense for Drupal shell. It's a command line utility, sort of like, Tinker or console commands in Laravel or any other type of server-side uh, language utility where people could just run it and put a particular redirect into Solar and, and delete them and clean them up and so on. And then we just did a lot of bulk updating. So long story short, well, that's not really short, but 
the end result was that we were able to launch the site on, on time. You know, we had, there was always ongoing issues with maintenance and, you know, keeping up and maintaining the redirects and maybe some tweaks to the tools and, and other things, but it was incredibly fast. And I, I always intended to write a blog post for, for us or maybe around Pantheon because Pantheon was the hosting uh, provider that we were using. Never did get around to it, but. The whole thing that made me proud, I guess, of my idea was that one, I was, we were under pressure, had to come with an idea, and I just sort of thought out of the box in a way that people hadn't thought of and was able to, to you know, make it work, implement it, and, and handle hundreds of thousands of redirects in a pretty efficient manner. So I want to understand this technically a little bit better because when, I, when I'm thinking, if you, if you have all of these, when you said file-based, I'm thinking... Something like an HTML, even just a text file, file CSV file, you know, some sort of simple file structure. You know, you have basically where you're mapping old URLs so to you new just URLs. Needed, oh, okay, okay, I see what you're saying. And so, putting in a CSV wasn't wasn't fast enough because it wasn't indexed, and it'd have to go through each row yeah. to find something that was just too slow. And so, in Apache Solar, was it is that was that better than trying to use a SQL database? Was there something particular about it that, that gave it an edge there for that? Well, I mean, Solar is designed for search. I mean, it's, it's key value store, basically, but it's designed to find things quickly as compared to a SQL table. And it was, you know, I wrote, we had all our data in SQL, but we're using Drupal and as a as PHP templating on the front end. And just as a proof of concept, I wrote a view front end that searched a given index and, and had pagination and all kinds of stuff. And the speed was off the charts. It was so much faster going through Solar. I could literally click and it was instantaneous paginating through results, finding results much quicker than anything I'd ever seen in, in SQL. Just because like I said, it's divine for, just it's designed to quickly find things. And in this case, there wasn't a lot of text manipulation you had to do. You know, you weren't worrying about index searching and full text searching and stemming and, and all the things that go into to indexing your data so that it's easy to find. It was really just, here's one URL, find another URL. And from a size standpoint, putting stuff in, in Solar, you know, we had a lot more room there, I guess, and flexibility than we did dumping hundreds of thousands of records into you know, MySQL, which is the database that we're using as our backend. And the MySQL database was doing other stuff too. Yeah, it's the main source for the Drupal. But, you know, that was Drupal 7. So not only did you have data, you had configuration stuff in, in Drupal as well. It wasn't until Drupal 8 that they went with an external configuration management system using um, some sort of ML files, I forget. So that, that would kind of make sense why it'd be slower because it's not just trying to handle these hundreds of thousands of redirects, but it's also trying to handle the data for the site. And so it probably using the solar had less, had fewer responsibilities so it was able to dedicate more resources to that really important task. Mm-hmm. And like that's a key takeaway that I take from this, is that we generally like to reuse the systems that we already have in place. And very often it does work, but sometimes it doesn't. And then it, it, it's worthwhile, like you said, to kind of think out of the box and think what are the actual constraints that I have on the data. Maybe I can use a different system that actually leverages these constraints to actually gain better behavior or better performance. And like you said, given that you were just mapping one string into the other, something that's a key value sort of a map is is potentially much more efficient than just working, you know, searching 
through some sort of a, of a, of a database that, like AJ said, is, is loaded and is much and provides a lot of functionality that you don't actually need in this case. Yeah, I need to go back and correct one thing, AJ. So the database was used to store data, but the front end was actually pulling from solar. So all of our data, you know, products and, and past logos and graphics and that kind of stuff was in solar and the front end was pulling from that, but it was still being used, you know, for writes, you know, adding data and, and that kind of stuff, plus configuration information. So, but solar, we had a lot more, uh, it was easier to, upscale and add indexes and change things as needed than it was from a MySQL standpoint. And as far as I know, that site is still, as I understand it, that site is still up and running using that uh, same infrastructure. That's always cool to find something that you did a while back and see that it still works and serves its purpose. Yep. So Dan, you said you had one more Yeah, so I'll, I'll tell it quickly or briefly. So this one takes me way, way back. So I'm talking actually the dot-com days late 90s i was worked before i was born (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) okay if you say so (laughs) anyway so we're talking late 90s and i'm working at this hot startup and what we are doing is uh we we had this mechanism which could leverage unused bandwidths what i mean is that back then if if you wanted to watch video online you know, the streaming protocols were just not practical given bandwidth constraints that were, that existed back then. And the, and the protocols that existed back then, it just wasn't, wasn't effectively workable. So if you wanted to actually download, uh, watch a video from, you know, that you, from the web, you would actually need to download that video in order to watch it. And who wants to watch a video that you need to wait, I don't know, two hours for it to download because you can, before you can actually do anything with it. So the system that we had in place was one that would be, was able to download large chunks of data in the background by using, by like leveraging the unused bandwidth. So think about it, if you're like browsing the web, you download stuff into your browser, but then you basically just read the site that you downloaded. So most of the time, the the network connection is like available. But if you start a big download and you don't get out of, out of the way once the, the, you know, the user clicks the link in the browser, then you degrade their experience. So what you want is like a system that can identify when network bandwidth is available, start downloading stuff, and then automatically pause that download immediately whenever it, it discovers that the user actually requires their bandwidth. And, and that's kind of like the, intellectual property that the company that I was working at at that time had kind of invented this kind of a mechanism for downloading large stuff in the background without adversely impacting your browsing experience so that you could say, you know, download this huge video and let me know when it finishes, whenever it finishes and and stuff like that. And when we, when we implemented it, when we started implementing the, the client side for this, it was like a custom client that used the web or the internet, but it wasn't like browser based. It was like custom software that you installed on, on your, on your computer. And it, Windows 95 had come out not that long before. So, you know, I'm really dating this story. And what people had before Windows 95 was something was Windows 3.1 or 3.11, which were terrible systems. They were like 16-bit. They didn't really multitask. 
there you was no did not grow up playing Fisher Price school bus on DOS, apparently. Well, I, I worked in DOS before, but I'm not going that far back. All I'm saying is that Windows 3.1 or 3.11 as an operating system was pretty abysmal because it was not much more than a fa- sort of a visual facade on top of DOS in a lot of ways. So it was like all the processes ran in the same uh, memory space. Uh, it was just 16-bit, not 32-bit. It didn't really multitask, like the processes had to relinquish control and, and, and whatnot. It was pretty bad. And so we said, hey, you know, Windows 95 has just come out. What, you know, it's going to, you know, why support those older systems? There, there's no point. So we wrote our, our client software for Windows 95 using all the new capabilities that were available in this much more quote unquote modern operating system. And then we brought in investors. And one of the investors that we brought in was uh, SoftBank. Uh, you know, the guys that invested in, in WeWork, in Alibaba, and, and various other companies, they exist still today. They're pretty, they're pretty huge. And they liked what they saw and they were willing to invest millions of dollars in the company. But they said, but they had a catch. They said, our analysts, our market and analysts say that it's going to take years, maybe even decades for Windows 95 to replace those older systems. So if you want our millions of dollars, you need to support the, that old, old, those older versions of Windows as well. So you need to backport your client software to also run on that Windows 3.1 or 3.11 in addition to Windows 95. And I'm talking, this is like 97 or something like that. And we kind of tried to... Are they smoking? And we kind of, and, and unlike you, while we did try to argue at the end of the day, they were adamant and it was their money. Uh, so we formed within the company a three-man team. And think about it, for a startup to allocate three people to work on something, that's like, I don't know, that was like a, like a third or a quarter of our entire development team. And we worked on, and I was part of that team, fortunately, unfortunately, and we worked on it for like a whole year backporting uh, that system. So it's like three man years of backporting that software to run on, on Windows 3.1. And, and we succeeded. It amazingly, it worked. So we actually were able to release that as a product. Now, the interesting thing is because it was a web-based product, it had telemetry. So whenever somebody, it was like for the consumer market, but whenever somebody installed that software, on their computer, you know, we would get information about it. So we knew how many people were using our software at any point in time and where they were coming from and whatnot. So like after we released it, we had, I don't know, like tens of thousands of users on, on Windows 95. And how many people on Windows 3.1? Can you guess? Was it a perfect goose egg? No, it wasn't. There were something like three users. Yeah. So, for the win. For the win. So we invested so, something like three man years of effort on supporting three users because that was a condition for getting the money from SoftBank. Man, who could have guessed? Who could have guessed that multimedia software would have caught on for a system that didn't have a multimedia player? 
Yeah. Well, on, on the positive side, we did get the investment money and we were able to go public before the dot-com bubble burst. And the company awesome. did reach a valuation of a couple of billions of dollars before it went back to nothing. So, you know, I was able to exercise some stock options and it did help me buy my first house. So, you know, it, it turned out good in the end. But uh, awesome. but I wish we could have told them to to like, you know, you're, you're idiots or, or whatnot. And, and please give us our, <laughs> your money without forcing us to create this version that nobody needs and nobody asked for. So what, what if you hadn't done it though? What would have the consequences have been if you just done it, dedicated very little resources to it and just well, always said, oh yeah, it, yeah, yeah, we're just delayed. It's the big cost is the alternative cost. It's like the, the thing that we, we probably would have been able to deliver other things much, much earlier. It's really difficult for me to try to, to guess what would have happened if any, if things would have turned out better or worse, you know, who knows? I think it would have done a, a big service to the company. But, but like I said, the, you could say that the, the company got some millions of dollars for this project, even if at the end of the day, that project wasn't really needed for the success of the company. So effectively, you could say that we sold this as a product to SoftBank for the investment bucks. So I really can't say at the end of the day, like if how much of a difference it would have made. I have to think that spending like a third of your R&D team on something that's totally not beneficial for a startup company for a whole, for I think it was something like a whole year. I, I can't imagine that being a good thing for well, any I'm, startup. I'm more wondering what would the repercussions have been? You know, what, because a lot of times in life, what I think about, you know, there's the rules. And if you break the rules, there's a consequence. And so, for example, library books, right? If you rent a library book and you don't return it on time, the fee is usually something so incredibly small that it's just, it doesn't even matter, right? 50 cents. Oh, like that episode on Seinfeld? I don't know that episode on Seinfeld, but probably yes. Yeah, there's an episode where he's being chased by a library cop for a book he supposedly didn't return when he was a teen or something like that. Well, it takes it takes a long time. You have to be, I don't know what, five years late before they charge you for the cost of the book. And if I don't know if they ever charge you for the cost of the book, at some point you hit a maximum fee, I think, with most libraries. And if you just have the book forever and you never return it, you're just not allowed to go back to the library to get a new book. But the cost of not returning a library book is so incredibly small, it's in the noise. And and that's what I'm saying is when you when you think of what the rules are and what the consequences are breaking the rules. And I had this in college. So we had these uh, cleaning checks. Well, you always fail your cleaning check. It takes you four hours to clean everything. And if you fail the cleaning check, then they charge you, say, $20 and life moves on. So am I going to spend four hours cleaning the day before I have some important assignment due or that I want to go out on a date? Or am I going to fail the cleaning check and pay $20? And I most likely would have failed even if I had spent the four hours cleaning because they like to fail you. They like to, you know, they put their finger on, on the, you know, the seventh window blind from the top. And, and if dust comes off, oh, you know, you failed, right? So there's a lot of things in life where you can play, let's say, rather than play by the rules, you can play to the rules or against the rules or however you want to say it, where you can take the consequence 
of breaking the rule and have a much larger gain than if you followed the rule. That, that's what I'm asking about this situation is if you had broken your agreement, what would the consequence have been negative for you and your company? Well, to be honest, I don't know. That would That's a question for uh, the, the guy who was the CEO of the company, who's, by the way, now I, I, I'm still kind of, kind of in touch with him and he's like uh, a billionaire so i imagine that his life turns out okay despite this episode so <laughs> everybody came out ahead in the end except maybe softbank they made a lot of money of selling their investment in alibaba but we can beat me i guess everybody will, will guess what which word i used so i don't know what the consequences have been i i assume the fact that he had had us you know, still working on it for that entire duration meant that either he had uh, bigger fish to fry or he just couldn't get out of it. But again, at that point in time, I was just a junior developer doing what I was told. So it was what it was. Have you ever wished that you had a group of people that were just as passionate about writing code as you are? I know I did. I did that for most of my career. I'd go to the meetups. I'd try and create other opportunities. And it was just really hard, right? The meetups, I got some of that, but they were only like once or twice a month. And it was just really hard to find that group of people that I connected with and, and really wanted to, you know, talk about code a lot, right? I mean, I love writing code. I think it's the best. And so I've decided to create this community and create it a, a worldwide community that we can all jump in and do it. So we're going to have two workshops every week. One of those or two of those every month are going to be Q&A calls, right? Where you can get on, you can ask me or me and another expert questions. Uh, the rest of them are going to be focused on different aspects of career or programming or things like that, right? So it'll go anywhere from like deployments and containers all the way up to managing your 401k and negotiating your benefits package. We'll, we'll cover all of it, okay? And then we're also going to have meetups every month for your particular technology area. So we have shows about JavaScript, React, Angular, Vue, and so on. We're going to have meetups for all of those things. I'm going to revive the freelancer show. We'll have one about that, right? So you can get started freelancing or continue freelancing if that's where you're at. And I'm working on finding authors who can actually do weekly video tutorials on something for 10 minutes that's related, to, again, to those technology areas so that you can stay current and keep growing. So if you're interested, go to topendevs.com slash sign up and you can get in right now for $39. When we're done, that price is going to go up to $75. And the $39 price gets you access to two calls per week. The, the full price at $150, which is going to be $75 over the next few weeks, that price is going to get you access to all of the calls and all of the tutorials and everything else that we put out from Top End Devs along with member pricing for our remote conferences that are coming up next year. So go check it out, topendevs.com slash sign up. All righty. So with that, we're going a bit long. So we're going to turn to picks. Picks are the part of the show where we get to talk about things we like to talk about that may or may not have to do with tech, uh, books, food, movies, ATV crashes, you name it, uh, we can talk about it. So uh, let's start with Dan. What do you got first for picks? Dan? Okay, so for my first pick, I actually attended a conference in Israel yesterday and today, this time not as a speaker, but as uh, an attendee. 
and I had a great time. It's called reversing conference. So basically it's just like going in reverse, but I don't know, like it's a sort of a wordplay. It's from this really popular podcast that a tech conference uh, podcast in Israel and uh, they started a conference. So, so, you know, that's what it's about. And I had a great time there. It was a uh, in-person conference and there were a lot of uh, hallways in hallway interactions, which was, which were great. But what I specifically want to call out is that person that we've had uh, on our show as a guest, uh, Moran Weber, I, I forget which episode it was, you know, you can check in the background, but she gave a talk about uh, titled Code Like a Girl Breaking the Gender Stereotype. And it was an amazing talk. And she just like, he, she gives, you know, real world data about stuff like why it is that, for example, that uh, women are still to this day relatively underrepresented in, in the tech industry. And it turns out that it wasn't always this way, that up until something like the mid 80s, working in it with computers was actually considered a quote unquote feminine job, something that that's appropriate for women to do. And it was only like in the some, sometime, in, sometime in the 80s that this sort of inversion took place that has never been fully kind of rectified. And, and she gave like interesting insights about it and why you may want to do something about it and what you can actually do about it. And it was a really cool talk. And maybe we should have her on our show again to actually talk about that. So it was really great. And I wanted to shout that out. So that, that's one pick. Another pick that I have, I don't know why, but I, I started rereading this really, let's call it, oldie or oldie but goodie science fiction uh, book called The Moat in God's Eye. It's by uh, the author is, it was actually co-written by Larry Niven and Jerry Purnell, both of them well-known science fiction writers. And I'm enjoying it a lot. I think I read it like, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago. I don't remember it. So I'm reading it now and I recommend it. So if you like that sort of thing, if you like hard science fiction books, it's it's kind of slightly dated. I mean, like you run into futuristic technology that's <laughs> that's not as sophisticated as what we have now, uh, like smartphones. They they didn't consider the concept. So people are constantly like you know with Star Wars, where you know they constantly go to these like intercoms on the wall when they're in the ship, and you're thinking, hey, why don't you just you know use something like a smartphone or whatever. But it's still a great book and I'm enjoying it. So I, I'd like to shout that out as well. And my third and final pick is, as always, the ongoing war in Ukraine, uh, where the Ukrainians are, it seems, are being successfully pushing back the Russians. And the Russians are retaliating in what can only be called crimes against humanity by explicitly targeting civilian and inf uh, infrastructure and the actual civilians themselves using rockets, using Iranian drones, like suicide drones that literally dive into people's houses and blow them up. So it's, it's quite terrible. And again, anything that you can do to, to help, I urge you to do. And those would be my picks for today. And just for reference, the episode with Milan Weber was number 483 of Dobbs Group We'll put that in the show notes. AJ, what do you have for picks? So uh, first off, a pick what... I I didn't that, that didn't have and should have had had I realized it 
there are these protective vests slash jackets that have semi-rigid foam structures in them that if we're to say, for example, go into the mountains as an East Coast quad biker, not realizing the dangers of West Coast mountain quad biking, and then flip the four-wheeler onto yourself and crush your back that you'd really, really want to be wearing. So I hurt myself on Saturday. I, I basically, I was going up an incline that was it was fairly steep, but it's not, it wasn't the kind of thing, I don't know, I wasn't smart enough, I wasn't experienced enough to be worried about it. And my my front tire either, I don't I don't exactly know what happened because it all happened in a matter of two seconds. But my, my front, something happened, the front tire, the front of the four-wheeler just popped up. And I, I think maybe what happened was I was thinking that I was just going to go over this big rock. And so I was continuing to give it gas. But the angle of the rock and the angle of the incline, instead, the four-wheeler just flipped up. And I don't know, I don't remember if I actually actively jumped off the four-wheeler. I kind of have a, a memory that that's what happened or if I was just thrown off it. But I distinctly remember looking at the handlebars and thinking the word throat, as in do whatever you can so that doesn't land on your throat because if it crushes your throat, bye-bye, AJ. And so I reached my hands out and I kicked my feet up uh, towards the seat. And then there's just this knuckle popping kind of thing. And my back just cracked. And now I have some lower back pain. I'm going to go see a doctor about it. I think, I don't think it's anything more than a sprain, but you know, I'm closer to 40 than I am to 20. So probably good to get it checked out. Anyway, I think the situation would have been way better if one, I had followed my own rule, which is when you're familiar with the terrain, be particularly cautious. I thought I was more familiar with the terrain than I was because I'd been in that area before. I just, I'd, I'd never had the four wheeler pop up on me like that. It, Typically, you know, just goofing off and making it pop up on purpose, it'll pop up a couple of inches. It won't pop straight back. But and and then, you know, to have have some protection. So uh, for anybody that is that is unaware, and you can get these things as cheap as a hundred bucks. So totally, totally worth it. Uh, Rocky Mountain ATV sell a whole bunch of them, and they're they're called body armor or protection jackets or protection shirts. There's the kind. There's kind of technical differences between the different styles of whether they provide protection in the elbow and the sleeve, or whether it's just a quote unquote roost protector, which is protection in the chest and in the back. But but I'm definitely getting one of those before I go riding again, and I'm definitely a lot smarter. Well, hopefully, yeah. I mean, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna be more cautious next time I go out, and I'm gonna be more aware that that uh, you know one. With mountain terrain, it's more unpredictable how the four-wheeler is going to behave. And two, with mountain terrain, when you fall, it hurts a lot more because you're falling on large rocks, not nice East Coast dirt. (laughs) So, yeah, there's that. Also, I think I picked last time. Did I pick last time Project Hail Mary? I think you've mentioned it a couple of times. You might have sort of picked it. I don't remember. I think I think you kind of. I don't remember. Well, that, that was a book. I, I I remember you mentioning it. That's a book that I recently finished, and it was pretty good. It was it was kind of uh, kind of cartoony in a sense. It wasn't anywhere at the level of a Brandon Sanderson book of of feeling that that just depth of character and world development. But it was enjoyable, and I think it would make a good movie. 
It's by the same guy that did The Martian. And then I'm going to anti-pick Twilight. I'm going to listen to the entire Twilight book. But from the first couple chapters, you can totally see how Shades of Grey came from it. And as the chapters continue, it just doesn't get better. I mean, this is an empty, hollow shell of a human who her only identifying characteristic is that she's in love with someone who says that he hates her and loves her and wants to kill her and wants to keep her alive. So, I mean, I think I'm 10 or 12 chapters in now, and that's the story. I mean, I, I thought the movies were hilarious, but uh, the book is sick. <laughs> you you have more perseverance than I do. I didn't, neither the book nor the movies. I do recall that it was said that it was written as fan, as a, as a something like fan fiction for the Twilight. Uh, yeah, f- Fifty Shades. But I can see how it how it came from that because people say, "Oh, it's nothing like it's not." You know, this is a vampire story. It's about love. No, it's about a, a massive sadist. The, the girl is. Like she needs psychological help. I mean, I don't, I don't know what the author was thinking in portraying a teenage girl this way. Is is this the way that she believes teenage girls think? Is it common for teenage girls to think I, this way? I, I have, I, I have no idea. Anyway. But it's it's twisted. It is. But anyway, I I, I want to finish it because. I mean, and, and people love this book, and I have no idea how they love it. It's disgusting. But I, I want to finish it so that I've finished it, so I've given it a fair shot. I have no intent the other books. I have to tell you that I have no patience for, for stuff like that. So, for example, I, try, I'm, I tried to watch Rings of Power, and I, I like made it into like episode two or something, and, and I, I just can't. And, and, and I don't try to force myself. It's, it's Tolkien fan fiction. I have no patience for Tolkien fan fiction. And that's that. Well, the last thing, changing gears, no, no pun intended, honestly, is there's, it's difficult to find a complete wrench set in metric that has all of them. Because if you work on metric stuff, everything's fair game. It, you know, when you, when you work in, uh, the, the imperial system, you're not going to find a 63 64th wrench, right? There's As you get larger in sizes, you're not going to go to the, the 64th or the 32nd. It's, it's going to continue on a scale where that then makes sense. But in the metric, in the metric tool set, every tool is one millimeter larger. Now, when you start to get to something like 30 millimeters, there's so little difference between 29 millimeters, 30 millimeters, and 31 millimeters, that it just, it it doesn't even make sense. Why would you have those numbers? And it kind of feels that way too, when you get up towards numbers like even 22, you know, do you need a 21? Like there should be no reason that you would ever need a 21 millimeter wrench, but yet sometimes you do because, because it's, it's standardized. They exist, even though it, it seems... So there's this Duratec combination wrench set that has seen, it's the only reasonably play, priced wrench set that I could find that actually has every number between 8 millimeter and 22 millimeter, which I need working on the four-wheeler because sometimes I actually need, most sets don't include a 16 millimeter, for example, or an 18 millimeter or 20 millimeter, because normally it's uh, it's like 15, then 17, then 19, then 22. But there are parts that I've come up where I actually need that in-between size that is, you know, a part of the metric system. And so I found this Duratec 
set that I'll link to that has everything between eight and 22. And um, I was, I was quite happy to find it because I've gone to Lowe's and Home Depot and Harbor Freight and uh, you can get these $300 toolkits include a ton of stuff, but it's been hard to find just look, I just want every size of metric wrench you know, and I guess some of them, if you substitute the, if you take the imperial sizes they give you and the metric sizes they give you, then I think you actually kind of do have every size within half a millimeter. But I just, I just prefer to have the millimeter set and only the millimeter set. And then if I ever need the imperial set, I can, you know, I can deal with the half millimeter difference at that time. So that's the last one. So yeah, I have a suggestion for you that incorporates some of what Dan just talked about and with one of your picks. You were talking about the safety vests, you know, that protect your, your chest. Well, particularly my uh, son and I, okay, the chest in the back. My son and I are reading through the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And if you remember, this actually sort of goes back to The Hobbit, actually. But my suggestion would be a coat of mithril. You know, that's the armor that was uh, created by the dwarves and coat of mithril. It's incredibly valuable. It was given to Frodo and actually saves him when he gets jabbed by some orcs in the mines of Moria. So... Uh, if you can find some, I would suggest one of those because they seem to be very strong. I check that out. They they call this stuff uh, D three zero, but maybe if I dig into it, maybe it's the same molecular compound. Could be, could be. All right. So finally, my th- picks, my dad jokes of the week. So you know, when I first moved into my house, uh, had we had some delays in getting internet, and so. I had one neighbor who let me use their unsecured wireless for a while, which I needed for work. And I had some other neighbors similar, and I thought they were really good people too. But then they uh, actually put a password on their wireless. You know, they wouldn't let me share it anymore. So, okay, moving along. Fun fact. Did you I know? It. I thought they were good people until they put a password on their wireless. They were being mean and not letting me use it anymore. Okay, moving on. Yeah, yeah, do move moving on. on. Did you know... That T-shirt, you know, we always wear T-shirts, is actually short for Tyrannosaurus shirt, and that's because of the shorter arms. Okay. Right? I like that. No, that was good. That was good. That one landed for me. And then finally, I was, you know, being Halloween, uh, my son came up and asked me a question the other day, and he says, Dad, how do you cast spells? I said, well, you just follow the instructions. He said, well, which instructions? I said, yeah, those ones. Okay. Okay. That one landed for me too. <laughs> yeah, I like that one. Yeah. So that's it with picks and our episode of JavaScript Jabber. Hope you've enjoyed it. And we will talk to everybody next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C A C H E F L Y dot com to learn more.